Why do we keep on taking vitamins and supplements? Screening for atrial fibrillation with your smartphone. Putting people with Alzheimer's disease on ventilators. And does calcium increase your risk of heart disease? That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on October 14th, 2016. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I think we're going to need to turn to the Journal of the American Medical Association, something I find somewhat inexplicable. Gosh, all this data, we talk about these things all the time, vitamins and supplements. Now, taking a look at, in the face of evidence, what are people doing? And you're right. Over the last several years, we've reported that most dietary supplements don't improve health. What these authors tried to address is, what are the use trends in the United States over the last decade? The NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, are conducted serially. So they compared the surveys conducted in 1999 to those conducted in 2012 with regard to vitamin use. What the authors found, to their surprise, is despite all the data showing that most supplements don't help, the use of supplements remains stable. About 52% of Americans used them in 1999 and used them in 2012 as well. This is a little curious, isn't it? Because in spite of people like us, but also lots and lots of other outlets reporting that, hey, these things aren't really helpful, people continue to do it. And it's expensive sometimes. It is, Elizabeth. And interestingly enough, a significant number of these individuals were using four or more of these supplements simultaneously. Now, they did discover there was a little difference in the trend. For example, the use of multivitamins, and by the way, they've never been shown to be helpful, has decreased slightly, oh, from about 40% to about 35%. But there were a number that increased in use. For example, fish oil supplements. Vitamin D has gone up, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that when we talk about another article. This suggests either that we're not getting the information out there or we're getting the information out and people just don't believe it. I'm wondering if it's a chicken soup kind of a hypothesis, right? It can't hurt, so may as well try it. It won't hurt me and maybe it will help. And that's an interesting thought because many of these supplements actually do hurt. For example, ephedra was one of those supplements. We've had over 10,000 reports of people having serious health issues related to that. So people say, well, it's natural and it's a vitamin. It can't possibly hurt. And that's not the case. That, of course, is a beautiful segue into the Journal of the American Heart Association, a study that originated here at Johns Hopkins, looking at calcium supplementation and its potential impact on heart disease. We have discussed the importance of taking calcium for bone health, and the recommendation is to take between 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day. That's best done if it's in the diet and supplemented with brief exposure to sunshine where vitamin D is made. For many individuals, they don't have enough calcium in their diet or they don't have the right sunshine exposure and they can develop low vitamin D levels and osteoporosis. What our colleagues at Hopkins did was look at the intake of calcium either from the diet or from calcium supplements and look at the risk of coronary artery calcification because there was some concern that taking excessive amounts of calcium may actually lead to calcium deposits in the arteries. They have a large number of individuals, over 5,000, that have undergone coronary artery calcium screening. And then about half of those had another screening 10 years later. So they were able to look at the progression of coronary artery calcification and tie it to either calcium in the diet or calcium supplements. And what they discovered was when they looked at individuals who had calcium in their diet, those with the highest amount 
actually had a lower risk of developing new coronary artery calcification. That's with your diet. However, with the supplements, it was just the opposite. Comparing individuals who took a low amount, that is about 300 milligrams a day, up to the highest amount, that's over 2,000 a day, there was a 22% increase in the risk of developing new coronary artery calcification. Let's close the loop here. Let's talk about the relationship between, of course, these coronary calcium scans that are just so popular right now and heart events. There is some association, but it's not terribly strong. Coronary artery calcium is just a surrogate marker for coronary heart disease, but it's not one-to-one. -one. So this is, I'm going to consider, a very soft endpoint. And the authors of this investigation would also admit to that. What it does say is that for the dosage of calcium we're recommending for bone health between 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day, it did not increase the risk of calcium in the coronary artery. So that is safe. And also that it should be dietary rather than supplemental if that's possible. Absolutely. The more calcium in the diet, the less the risk of developing coronary artery calcification. It was only the supplementary calcium that led to issues. Okay. Let's turn from here then, since we're talking about the heart, to the journal Heart, a look at whether atrial fibrillation can be detected with an app on the smartphone. The use of smartphones has extended from the use of calling smart people, or smart people using them, to really helping us control our health. One of the newer applications is the ability to measure or assess heart rhythm with a little device that attaches to your phone that allows you to place your thumbs or your fingers on it and it can assess what your heart rhythm is. And the question is, can we use that to detect rhythms that we otherwise might treat? Atrial fibrillation being the most important one. So we know that people that have that have an increased risk of having stroke and we can lower that risk by putting them on blood thinners. So these investigators looked at over 13,000 people in Hong Kong that volunteered to measure their heart rhythm them and send it in for analysis. Now some of these individuals already had a history of atrial fibrillation, but there was about 1% that sent in a rhythm that showed atrial fibrillation and they had no previous history and no knowledge that they had ever had it. When they went back and said, do you know that you have an irregular heart rhythm or you have any heart symptoms? They said, no, this is news to me. Of course, since it's risky stuff, it sounds like this could be a potentially new application. It is. We've talked before about screening just the population at large and how that can be fraught with risk, especially if there are false positives. What we like to do is we like to target our screening. So we can target individuals that are higher risk. And interestingly enough, when they looked at individuals in this study, they were able to identify risk factors that we already knew. You're more likely over the age of 65 or 75. You're not likely to have atrial fibrillation if you're 20 or 25. Also things like weight. So I would suggest that let's target individuals that are at high risk. I would have to agree with that because otherwise we risk having great legions of worried well, running around with lots of apps measuring all kinds of physiologic states and, oh no, wondering if they're going to end up with a heart attack at the end of that. Absolutely. So this is nice. It's a proof of concept. Finally then, let's turn to something that I'm very concerned about. In JAMA Internal Medicine, the fact that more and more people with advanced dementia, Alzheimer's disease, are being put on mechanical ventilation in the ICU. And while mechanical ventilation can be life-saving in certain individuals, individuals with advanced dementia, it can actually prolong the suffering and may not provide any clear benefit. But what these authors did was a really interesting thing. They did a retrospective study of Medicare beneficiaries who had advanced dementia. Three-fourths of these individuals were bedridden. And they were hospitalized between 2000 and 2013. And what they looked at 
was how often these individuals ended up on mechanical ventilation, and importantly, did it actually improve their outcome. And what they discovered is over that 12-year period, looking at over 635,000 hospitalizations from over 380,000 individuals with advanced dementia, the use of the mechanical ventilation doubled. When they looked at survival, it did not change at all. And then they looked at the number of ICU beds in the hospital, and what they discovered was the hospitals that had a higher number of ICU beds were hospitals that were more likely to have these individuals on mechanical ventilation. Clearly, this points to a need for medical staff to communicate to families of patients who come in like this, hey, the outcomes are not likely to be good Is this really something that you want to employ in this person? That's an important part. I'll take it a step further. Those discussions need to be had early in the hospitalization rather than later. And most often in these circumstances with advanced dementia, it's supportive care. It's palliative care. You're trying to make them comfortable. If you have those discussions early on, you can follow the wishes of the patients and their family. If you wait to the end when a person develops pneumonia or an infection and you're scrambling to figure it out and you don't have all the family there, then they end up de facto on a mechanical ventilator while you're trying to get the family in to decide what to do, and that's too late. Right, and this is something, of course, I would urge everyone to consider early in their lifetime and to establish these kinds of documents that say, hey, these are my wishes, this is what I want, and this is what I don't want, so please don't put me on a ventilator at the end of my life. And you and I are both aware is there are standardized directives called Physicians' Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And this promotes consistency, consistency in the message and consistency with carrying out those directives. And many healthcare providers and physicians aren't aware of these. Right. In Maryland, as we've talked about, that's the most, the Maryland Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It is a medical order. It's something that someone discusses with their physician that's in place and is somewhat distinct from advanced directives. It is. I mean, and specifically, it addresses decision-making about treatment for things like infections and hospitalizations before they occur, not in the middle of those events. And I guess I would just emphasize that I think both of our concerns with regard to this is really how humane is it to put somebody with advanced dementia on a mechanical ventilator? Especially, as this study shows, where it really doesn't improve their outcome. Exactly. On that note, of course, that's the one I'm going to talk about this week on the blog. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lyons. Y'all live well.